Welcome to War Gaming Recon. I am your host, Jonathan J. Reinhardt. War Gaming Recon is the only member of the TSR Podcast Network to discuss historical and New England gaming. Today, we are coming at you live from the one and only Hold the Line Virtual Gaming Convention. This is being put on by the Maine Historical Wargamers Association, and they're doing this instead of their usual in-person huzzah. But I will tell you, for 2022, huzzah will be back four days of gaming fun first time ever and so with that out of the way i want to tell you about a very special person we have joining us today on the show so she's been here before but never live in an event like this the way that we're doing it she is the owner of Alyssa fading cartography she streams her map making to YouTube Mondays through Wednesday evenings. She also has all sorts of really cool videos on her YouTube channel, whether it's about cartography, whether it's tips and tricks, whether it's painting, war gaming, you name it, it's there. She raises tons of money for charity. She's a great person. She's an industry guest for all sorts of really cool conventions. But most personally, she's just a really wonderful person. So I am, of course, talking about the one and only Alyssa Faden. Alyssa, how are you today? After an it's so like that. Thank you so much, Jonathan. I'm pumped, man. This is this is fantastic. And I want to give a special shout out to Hold the Line for allowing me to be here. Uh, yeah, I they are an amazing group of people, and I'm really grateful that they've asked us to be part of it here. We're giving uh recon to help out and do what we can. And they just have all sorts of virtual games going on, so it's really cool that they wanted to include this. And they would do it, I think, some painting tutorials and other stuff too so people can just a little bit of everything really it's a, a neat way to kind of do a virtual gaming convention that's fantastic and you know painting tutorials in particular uh, or i think you could probably even get into basing tutorials i think they lend themselves very well to the virtual format i think you're right because it, it's easier for people to see what you're doing and to kind of follow along than to just read something that's been written uh i don't know about you but whenever i get like a gaming magazine and i look at it and they'll say here's this unit or this model we painted and here's how you too can do and i read it and i mean i could follow along but it's i'm i'm sure there's always something that they do that they don't realize they do so therefore they don't write it out in the article and i miss it uh whereas if you're doing it and you're recording yourself and streaming it or whatever that you're doing it everyone can see what's what that is even if you don't realize what it is no, 100%, 100%. In fact, it was not long ago that I was um, painting a couple of uh, uh, Gary Gygax miniatures at GaryCon, right? And I did that virtually. And being able, uh, and I did it streamed. So having people on the chat with me was fantastic. They were able to ask questions. And that was wonderful. It, it, it's, it's probably as close. I actually want to say it's even potentially got some pluses over doing it in real life and that is because you can get a lot closer to what you're doing and i've been to like uh reaper miniatures or reaper con mm -hmm. and it's like you've got a, like a, a man or a woman on the other side of a class and maybe they've got a powerpoint up and they might have a miniature in their hand which is like 28 millimeters and you're like <laughs> I can't see what you're doing here. Well, if you do it virtually, you can get the camera right in on, on the work, you know. And I, I love that. I actually watched some YouTube videos recently about um, spraying, uh, 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 you oh, know. Okay. And I've not done it. I'm actually scared. I'm going to be recording myself for the first time shortly. 
because I have I have the spray gun, I have the compressor, which I'm scared of. And I've got the paints, I'm all set up and I need to do it because I have some big miniatures and projects that need like spray work, not brush. And so watching someone do it versus just reading it in a book, uh, honestly, it was way more reassuring. I was like, okay, okay. It doesn't sound loud. I had some concerns that way. I can mm -hmm. see that the spray is actually more contained than I thought. So uh, I think I can do this now. And I don't think I would have got that from anything written down, so to speak. What kind of airbrush do you have? Oh, don't ask me. <laughs> I don't know. No, I'm seriously, I, I don't need. Uh, so the truth of this is um, I am genuinely, and I mean this, scared of uh, airbrushing. Um, okay. Like in so much that in my head, this is what I think is going to happen. It's going to be a very loud compressor noise, a little bit like you're, you're, you're washing down the front of your yard or something. Mm -hmm. And I'm imagining going with the brush like a fire hose. <laughs> and it's just going to be everywhere. Uh, like no matter how controlled I am, I'm imagining that it's just going to go nuts. Now I know that everyone that's done airbrushing, everything I just said is wrong. I know that in my heart. But my brain is going, ah, like continually. So knowing that, um, I bought a compressor, I want to say five years ago. Okay. From an art store. Never taken it out of its box. I've got even the station you could spray into. I've even got a tube and an extraction fan. Oh, nice. Have, haven't used it. Never taken it out of its box. And I was given the airbrush by one of my favorite um, wargaming painters, actually, funny enough, um, mm -hmm. who lives in Spain. And he and I used to do a lot of business together. And he was like, you know, I'm going to give you my airbrush. And he gave it to me easily five years ago, easily. And I I have it downstairs somewhere. Thank you, David. I really but I use it, so I don't. I definitely don't know what it is. I don't even know if it's a trigger kind or the little toggle at the top. I don't know, you know, if, if, if the toggle has the, the different sort of degrees on it that you can have. I know nothing about it. I will hear shortly though, because I will be breaking all of that out, and I'm going to record it, um, and I'll, I'll find out. I I suspect. I will also be replacing it, Jonathan. You know, yeah. it, once you get used to it, once you figure out what you're doing, then you can make an informed decision about the next steps. But this will be a good baby steps for me. No, it's a, it's a, I think if you're going to do anything new, you should really just try to uh, make sure you find something that's good for beginners and accessible and not too complicated. So down the road, maybe you want all the bells and whistles and all the other stuff. But before you spend all that time and money learning how to do it and, and to get it all set up, Make sure that you're actually are comfortable doing it and you like doing it, whatever it is, before you go whole hog. Uh, so I, I think you're on the nose right there uh, with how to go forward with this. And I've learned that, by the way, in real life, because I tend to be the person, or at least I did in the past, that would go all hog. I would yeah. just go all in, you know. Um, like if I needed a calculator for college. I would buy the biggest, baddest calculator in the store. <laughs> if I need a stapler, seriously, I didn't buy just a little kachuk kachuk. I bought one this big. Oh, it my was, goodness. It was the mega stapler. It was, <laughs> I, I, and if I'm going to buy an army, I buy all in. I just go nuts on it. And I still have a degree of that, particularly around miniatures and 
well, yeah, a terrain and trees and stuff. But when when it comes to things that you've not used before, if you don't know if you're going uh, how this is going to go, and I think spraying for me is definitely that way. Um, yeah, start down here, get used to it, see how much you go to actually do it, and go from there. So when you buy a minis and stuff, you buy everything you think you're going to need for it all at once. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, like, it's just so I I used to have that approach, and then um, this I mean this really intrigues me uh for the thinking behind it and uh, so I'm really curious. I used to have this approach, and I just say, you know, I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to get all the stuff. I should just get it all at once before the price goes up, or what if it goes out of print or whatever. So I'd buy all the stuff, and then it took me a long time to realize it. But having all that stuff right in front of me, or you know, piled up somewhere, was really almost like writer's block. It was an obstacle. It was too uh, much for me to uh, just have in my headspace. And so I'd say, oh, wait, no, I, I can't. That's too intimidating. I'm not going to do it. And so then nothing would get done. And then I learned I really kind of have, for me anyway, I really have to break it down into much smaller segments, uh, almost tiny, really, for me, uh, so that I can get through stuff. And then. And for me, it has the added benefit of, well, you know, I can get one thing now, and then later on, I'll get, you know, something else. And so then it, it gives me that endorphin boost each time. But I've been burnt by it too, because there's been things that I wanted that are either out of stock or they don't make anymore or become too expensive. Uh, so there's definitely a downfall with the way I do it. What is your motivation for it? Uh, do you have any sort of secret sauce for why you do it that way? Well, mine's project based. Right. Okay. So and, and I'll use um, Tudorberg as an example. Mm. I knew I wanted to run Tudorberg at Enfilad. And so what do I need for that? Well, I need a lot of Romans and I need a lot of Germanics. Right. Let's just call them barbarians for now, because I can probably honestly put Celts on the table. I could even throw some Dacians on the table and no one's going to quibble over that. If they look appropriate and anti-Roman, people are going to be OK with it. Um, just to put any chariots on there, I guess. Um, so for me, the, the motivation was um, I need a hell of amount, like X amount. And I was doing this in 28 millimeter. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I knew I wanted to have, let's say, a thousand Roman miniatures on the table. And so on board with the ones I had, I bought an, a, a lot more. And same with the barbarics uh, or the barbarian types. Um, I knew I always wanted to have three or four times the amount of the 28 millimeter barbarians. Um, I knew I wanted to get a lot of Germanics in there, like the, the, the Swabians with the Swabian knots. They're just too good looking not to have on the table. So that was honestly, that's how I tend to approach things, a project. Um, and I buy everything I need for that project and then just work at getting all of the painting and the basing done for it. Uh, the same with Watling Street. I wanted to do Watling Street in 15 millimeter. I went out and I bought, honestly, too many 15 millimeter miniatures because I knew I want. OK, it, there may not have been 100,000 Britons there. Right. Um, but that's what is said. Um, but I knew I wanted a hellacious amount of 15 millimeter Britons and a staggering volume of chariots just because it was so iconic, at least at the forefront and X amounts of legions um, and cohorts are facing them. And really some really like one and a half legions or something like that. Right. So it, for me, 
knowing what project I'm working towards versus I want to get into, you know, Napoleonic gaming. Um, this was a very specific, I tend to work by battles. I want to recreate this battle. What do I need for this battle? Therefore, I will buy all of this, including terrain and everything, and get that together. Then when I create the next one, um, then it's a case of, is anything I have already capable of being used over here? Do I need to buy anything more to supplement it? So that's how I work, per battle, like projects. Actually, I'm doing the same with Napoleonics, by the way. Um, yeah. For Winter's Dianoro, I, I did exactly the same thing. It's like, okay, so I don't have Portuguese. I need to buy a whole bunch more Portuguese to balance this out. And I ended up with a small Portuguese army as a result. Um, and that was supplementing the Napoleonics I already had. So that's how I conquer it. I pick a project. I pick a battle. I want to put this on. Let's get what I need for that. So how do you store all this, or, or, or do you store it all? Do, what happens to these things when you're done with it? If you don't have any intentions for further projects, for you to reuse any portions of the stuff, and you just you have these armies, you have a table or whatever, what do you do with it? Well, I, 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 I'm going to guess that I'm like many of your viewers here, that I don't get rid of stuff even once the battle is done. Um, I mean, for me, and like over my shoulder here, I've actually got a miniature cabinet and they go back along that wall. For me, I look at my miniatures and I smile inside. I'm talking about in my soul, I smile. You know, they make me happy. So I like keeping them around. Um, now that said, I have a staggering amount of 28 millimeter Romans and their adversaries. I actually have a stunning volume of the polygonics also 28 millimeter and they they have storage requirements that are significant so for me honestly i have them in good storage containers like you know the good plastic you know stackable kind and um <clears throat> I have them in the bedroom. I have them under the bed. I have them in the cabinets over my shoulder over here. I have them in the garage, which is slowly being converted into a hobby room for me. There is a entryway alongside the garage, which joins the rest of the house to the garage. They're in there. In other words, I've taken over the half of the house. I mean, that's the bottom line. <laughs> you know, I, ha I have boxes, even boxes of unopened armies that I haven't painted yet everywhere uh, and i've tried to get like regimented and documented on it but i mean okay so in in the cabinet over my shoulder over here i have a 15 millimeter romans because honestly their footprint is so small even if you've got three legions you can actually stack them i've got little stacking trays in something like this area and it's fine and occasionally i open up that cabinet i see my romans and i go ah. <laughs> but the equivalent amount in 28s they're, they're honestly like a dressing cabinet of big plastic things, which I put a cloth over the top, which the cat likes to sleep on, and it's like a piece of furniture. And <laughs> if I, when I need to go to my Romans, I go to that particular part of the furniture. I love that. That's awesome. I, I, do, I mean, my aspirations are to put an extension on the house and have a dedicated room for this stuff, but I know eventually I'm going to outgrow that too. It's just I can't let things go. And I keep buying more. It's like, oh, you've got an army you're selling? I'll buy it. I'll buy it. 
Yeah. Oh, it's the ball war. I've never had an opinion on that before, but I'll buy it. You know, I just can't resist. I just love looking at armies. I love owning armies. I, I've done that. Uh, not as much as you, but I, I, well, I think we've all done that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I once, honestly, I once bought, uh, it was an estate sale. Um, and this gentleman had had a complete set of, you know, the, the 25 millimeters where they are that little bit smaller, you know, it is yep. clearly a different scale. You're not mixing and matching with 28 here. They have a smaller scale. And he had an entire set of armies that were uh, Greek in nature. It's like mm -hmm. you could reenact the Greek wars. And no one would buy them. Uh, you know, they were they were there in this auction and like no one had an interest. And there were boxes upon boxes upon boxes. I bought them. I bought them all. Never used them. I just I, I, I could not resist. I could not. and we filled the car coming home. The stacked, <laughs> stacked. And I, I still own them. I won't get rid of them. I have uh, illusions one day of rebasing them all because I love that part of things. Mm -hmm. But I, I, I have I have problems. But then I think most of us do in the hobby, right? Well, yeah, because <laughs> I'm trying to think of one person I know, one individual who doesn't do this to some degree. And I can't come up with anyone. <laughs> I mean, everyone from no matter where in the world they are. I, everyone's kind of you know constrained depending on their living arrangements but everyone kind of does it to some degree even, even if it's just it just it is your period right yeah let, let, let's say it may be american civil war um i'm not an american civil war war game although i have played several games of it it just isn't one of those eras i personally collect but i will guarantee that if someone is selling off a 15 millimeter army if that happens to be your period, at the very least, you'll go, ooh, yeah, right? We all do go, ooh, because even I did, and it's not my period. <laughs> I went, ooh, do I want this? Um, and, and, yeah, I think it's like, so you already have one, Jonathan. Yeah, but what what's he selling? What what Do I want any more of it? And, and then you go through the process of, is it the right scale? Could I make it work? Yeah. <laughs> you know, but so yeah, I, I think that's a it's a good fun part of the hobby, right? It, no, it really is. And I, I think you've kind of touched on an important thing that doesn't get discussed as much, but it really should. And it's the importance of having some sort of record of the paraphernalia that we've accumulated, whether it's armies or terrain or whatever, because uh, an optimistic approach would be you, it's good to have for insurance reasons in case heaven forbid your house, not yours, but a individual's house catches fire uh, or like when the time comes that we uh, are no longer here on earth, it helps those behind who may not know as much about it to dispose of it, whether it's at an estate sale or, or whatever to do it in a way that is beneficial for all involved. And, um, I know that was that was a big thing. I think at one point there's this company in England. I can't remember their name uh, that was trying to make it easy for people to kind of uh, have an inventory of at least their miniatures, I think. Uh, so you could do it all on their website and have it web-based. And then you could assign values to it or uh, scan in receipts for what you bought or something like that. Um, so there was a resurgence of it at one point. But I think a lot of people don't really think about this. Uh, and it's important. I mean, 
like I said, if nothing else for insurance reasons. No, a hundred percent. I mean, I had two motivations to be honest with you. And I think they were compelling motivations. First and foremost is fire. I mean, we don't want to ever think about it. Um, but it does unfortunately happen. Mm -hmm. And I actually had a friend who was building up for a big get together. And he was going to do a 15 millimeter Napoleonic game. He was going to have something like 20 people turn up for this massive three day event. It was a mega game and I love mega games. And, um, in fact, I was participating because I was painting some models and everything for him. I was painting the buildings and he had thousands of miniatures. He had this incredible terrain that he'd been building and he had a fire oh. and it destroyed everything. Oh, just no. destroyed everything. And aside from the rebuild that he is doing and the fact that his new house would be better than his old, all of the things that he lost in life, all of the memories that he's lost, and even just if you focus on what he lost that he had put together for this game, it is it, you can't put words to it. And that made me go, I should probably document what I own. And so uh, me personally, I take photographs and um, uh, Google uh, Google Docs. And yeah. I have a Google Doc listing everything out. You know, it's at the very least. It doesn't even capture probably half of what I own, but I'm trying to continually add to it. Um, everything behind me, or oh, that one direction. Oh, I did put it over the same shoulder. That direction. <laughs> um, I try to have at least photos of it. But you, you, if it came to insurance, you probably wouldn't even be able to remember. Even if the insurance company agreed to pay you for it, you wouldn't be able to remember what you have. So that was part of the motivation, a practical one. Um, but honestly, one of the big catalysts for me was one day I, I opened the box. I was like, what's in this box? And there was armies of 15 millimeter Greeks, armies that I'd completely forgotten about. Mm -hmm. And I opened up another box and it was a whole bunch of incredible 50, uh, 28 millimeter Napoleonics, like high quality. I'm talking about the ones where the miniatures are coming in their own little box with their mm -hmm. own little cotton on the bottom of them, you know? Mm -hmm. um, I forgot I owned them and I felt almost bad, you know? I, I was, I felt almost decadence in a way that my collection had grown to such a point where I forgot what I owned. And I was like, I can't go on like this. I need to, I need to know. And I need, it needs to be in my uh, memory. But also if I look at a box, I should at least have it written on the bloody side of it. I should have better organization here. I think a lot of people are in that boat, uh, but I'll tell you, it, it doesn't have to be a whole lot of items. It's not a, um, quantity uh, issue about uh, not remembering all the things that one has. I mean, you could have five things and you're probably going to forget three of them. Uh, it's just it's human nature uh, with how things go on. Uh, so it's not a case of, oh my goodness, you, you have so much stuff and how dare you have so much stuff that you can't remember at all. It's It happens to any, anyone. Well, uh, well, part of it though too is also like, okay, so I'm going to do a tree stand, for example. Um do I have any trees? Yeah. What trees do I have and where are they? You know, and, you know, I, my collection is kind of spread out a little bit. And mm -hmm. so even at the point of, okay, so where is my egg on? Um, I think I know. I think I know. 
So I'm going to be hunting around for my bloody air gun. So I'm trying to get just better at tracking and recording and compartmentalizing everything. Um, and honestly, even if, let, let's say someone comes to me and they say, hey, do you want to run Borodino? I should be able to know how many Russians I am. Mm -hmm. I, should, I should be able to know that. And I actually don't at this point in time. So I have some. I know I don't have enough, um, <laughs> but I should I should have it documented. I, I know uh, there are quite a few people who are really into this kind of inventorying of stuff for their Dwarven Forge items that they have. Uh, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I know you know, but for, uh, for others, Dwarven Forge makes just really amazingly high-quality modular terrain that people associate only with role-playing games and D&D &D in particular – but honestly, it's great for war gamers. They branched out a lot, and um, uh, where uh, I am, I, I guess I need to start saying I am working um, with some of the people there on some special war gaming sets that'll be coming out. Oh, are you at some point? Uh, yeah, I'm just helping okay. them with some makeups of how of, they're trying to find ways to use things that they have in new ways that'll appeal to war gamers. Um, okay. and they've been branching out more, and so uh, it's I don't know when it's gonna happen, but things are going on. Uh, but the point is, I you can use it for wargaming too, but because it's modular, it's like using Lego, right? Um, how do you keep track of all that? So, I, I keep everything in the boxes that they came in, and there's a million boxes, even for a small quantity of stuff. But some of these people go whole hog into it, right? Uh, that they have they would make your collections of wargaming stuff look like. A, a tiny, tiny anthill. And so you need to track that and how do you store it and what do you do? And there's a lot of discussions in the Dorn Forge communities about uh, what Ikea, um, or actually it's Ikea, I, I guess is how you're supposed to pronounce it. Um, like bookcases really? to use, okay. which ones are like, <laughs> this model is the best, but use it with this layout or that. And then you should use like these certain types of fishing tackle boxes, but not these or what. And then how do you label it? And what do you do? And then they have all these spreadsheets and they track all of it. And they, some of them go really in depth, uh, which the organizational part of me loves. But <laughs> in my case with two small children and many full-time jobs worth of work, it's never going to happen, uh, but I admire it. And I think just having some sort of organizing of all that is really important, whether it's, uh, you know, what you're doing, you have the, your uh, spreadsheet with the pictures and the Google doc and your uh, writing all the boxes. I think that's amazing too. That's really good to do, but it, it helps to kind of know how it is. And so I tend to have a, this stack of shelving units is this stuff <laughs> and in there. I got to go look and find, and it's not more defined than that. Although it honestly should be, but uh, it helps to be able to find what you're looking for. It really makes life easier. Well, no, 100%. So I do a lot of um, GeoHex, um, mm. which is um, obviously a modular way of, uh, of Wargaming terrain. And I, I, I really quite like it, particularly for 15 millimeter, actually. 28 millimeter, you could break out a different scale of sort of terrain. Um, I really love my GeoHex. I have a lot of it. Um, but it's not all documented. I, yeah, I've got some rivers. Um, I don't remember how wide they are. I, I'm not sure if I own a waterfall. I don't think I do. So there's a lot of that 
you know, if I was going to run something, I'm already in question of what do I own? You know, can I actually create this battlefield? And I think having something documented where you don't have to go through all of your boxes, pull it out, arrange it, only to realize actually you're short of a hill, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, it's useful. It's just being able to look at your collection, but without physically looking at your collection, if that makes sense, looking at something that's documented. And that applies to Dwarven Forge. It helps. It just it just helps. Yeah, sometimes paring through everything just isn't the smart way to do it. No, no, and, and that that has severe limitations. I mean, it it really does. Uh, I mean, I'll, I'll use the Geohex as an example. When I ran Watling Street, and I knew I wanted to create some hills that had almost a U shape, a valley going up towards the Romans at the end. My only way of actually creating this was to build it. Uh, I literally had to build it and then sort of figure out what I was missing. And it would have been, it just would have been more useful to actually have it documented what I owned. And so I could have looked at a spreadsheet, you know, and actually the spreadsheets of my, well, at this point, uh, Portuguese and British and French um, Napoleonics. Like if I was going to run a peninsula battle, I do have a spreadsheet now where I could track this. I could tell you if I have the forces for it or not, uh, without going to the boxes and pulling them out. I mean, that's it's a big time saver. So we actually have someone watching us uh, live who has a comment about your map making. And <laughs> and to kind of... Um, uh, oh, I know wardrobe, plays World War II. <laughs> Yeah, I know that fella. <laughs> um, do you uh, use any of this kind of organizational uh, skills and uh, processes uh, that we're talking about when it comes to wargaming and collecting all the stuff to your cartography? That's a really good question, and I would, I would love to turn around and say. Well, you know what? I do. I do. But it really depends on what I'm drawing because it can be two very different scales. I don't play a lot of um, skirmish-like games, but I draw maps that are more on a skirmish level, even if they're my city maps, you know, at the end of the day. Um, I tend to play games that are bigger. You know, my war games are bigger. And I don't tend to draw maps in there, but I have. Um I did a Verdun map, actually, um, and it was for a game. And so I was able to bridge both passions at that time. And I was able to think like a gamer and a cartographer and bring them together, you know. And that was maybe one of the most enjoyable projects because of it. Because even just drawing rivers, I could, I you know, normally I just draw a river. But, like... The wargamer in me is going, yes, but there are pieces that are going to be placed on this board. I need to know where the river is, what hex it's in, you know, and there's different ways of doing that. Same with same with forests. As gamers, we, we need to know, is the forest in this hex? I mean, there's a little bit that's coming into the hex. Does that count? And so, you know, while the, the cartography in me is like, ah, I'm just going to draw something pretty and give it a little bit of a drop shadow um and so that was probably the project that brought it all together for me to be honest with you uh, then i don't get into it again until you get really deep into 
dungeon maps, uh, battle maps, uh, Teagle Manor, Necropolis, um, where I know miniatures are going to be placed on that board. And so, yeah, but that's easier in a way because it's like I just need to work in terms of squares. Mm -hmm. Everything, the squares need to be seen and defined and not be hidden uh, and no like third square weirdness going on. Um, so there's a certain scale where the cartography doesn't even matter, uh, you know, and there's a certain scale where there's a sweet spot. Otherwise, honestly, there's not that much of an overlap. Um, I got asked once to draw some maps for actually a Napoleonic book okay. um, to show Napoleon. And, and I think then, yeah, uh, you, you start thinking but more like a cartographer about who is my audience, like what do they need to know? I need to make sure it's clear and understood uh, this is pretty, you know, this is not an artistic piece I'm creating now. This is more of an engineering piece in many ways. Uh, um, but that, there's no overlap otherwise. I, I think it's quite invaluable that you had that experience because uh, as a gamer, I've lost track of how many times I've played games where it feels as if the people who created the rules or were drawing out the little diagrams for how to interpret something didn't actually play the game in a real world setting. It didn't actually have to deal with, well, there's this much hanging out. What does that count for? And, right. And how many hours of discussion people have about what does this mean? <laughs> How right. it, it could it. be a forest it could be an elevation it could be a river the river is slightly coming into this area the, yeah. the, the city is slightly coming into this area therefore it counts as fortified and um, it's like I, and I, I think you need to be a gamer though I, I think that's the thing you need to be a gamer to be able to bring that to the map while most mappers may not be gamers Mm -hmm. And so I, I think for me, there is a potential sweet spot in that I get that. In fact, right at the beginning of the Verdun map, um, I always remember sending swatches to the client, not only for the ways to treat elevations, the ways to treat rivers, rail systems and so on. But it, it was not only the stylistic change. It was like, do you want this river following the edge of the hex? This is very clear what hex it's in. Do you want it more stylistic, you know? Um, and so, but that I could only do that because I understood both worlds. Uh, it's it's going to sound like I'm crawling and I'm not, but I think it's one of the many reasons why you're special because you get it. You, you just, you have this experience, you're able to be at that convergence and you get it. And so many people do not get it. Well, but it's I, yeah, no, and I appreciate that really, truly, I, I do, and it, it it is a fortunate part. It's like, no, I play these games. I genuinely play these games. <laughs> a, now I get to draw a map for you. Thank you so much for allowing me to be part of this. But now let's talk practicality of rules. You know, and I get that. Yeah. Uh, I, <laughs> so, uh, as, as you know, and as some of the people who are uh, uh, joining us might know. I've been working on a, a, a creating a bunch of wooded areas. And when I started making my woods uh, to put on the tabletop, I was very conscious. Uh, it, actually, when I started years ago, uh, this is just kind of an expansion of it. I knew I didn't want to do what I used to do in the past, which was to just have some trees that I would just plop down on a table and say, 
this area is wooded area, whatever that is. Uh, and so I wanted to make sure that didn't happen because that's too amorphous, right? It's too confusing for people. And, you know, heaven forbid, like, what if you knock over a tree or it falls down or you're somewhere and the cat hops on and plays Catzilla, it goes crazy or whatever. Uh, so I wanted to have a defined base uh, for them. So I was able to work with uh, York Bender from uh, Things in the Basement, and I asked him to create some really cool organic shapes. So he made some, and this way I would have a defined area. This is the wooded area. Uh, so whatever that is, anything in there, that's clearly defined for whatever the however the rules handle it. These are the woods. <laughs> and this is what it is. And so I've tried to do that with other terrain, whether I'm buying it or whether I'm making it. So I have... Um, Wargamer's Terrain is an amazing company that makes this really cool, flexible product. So you can have a hill, and it's flexible enough so that it adheres to your contours of your table and landscape while looking realistic, and you can use stuff. But it also both blends into your table, but is clearly defined enough so that you can say, this is the hill, or I have rivers from them. These are the rivers. This is where the river ends, because you can see the edge of the river. Here's the, the space outside it, and so you can clearly define what that is. And I think when you're gaming, it's really important that everyone can see and understand and know what is what, <laughs> whether it's a complicated well, game, whether it's a simple game. 100%. Uh, like, anytime I do woods, if they're not on some kind of base, like you're saying, Mm -hmm. I create that. I'll actually, I'll cut out felt yes, or whatever, the shape of the wood. So even if when I've got trees within that zone, you don't need to worry about the trees. You can even move the trees because that happens because you're moving miniatures through it, right? Yep. The felt or the canvas that is underneath it is the shape and position of the woods. And 100%. Now, now there's no ambiguity about where the woods start or end. Uh, I've kind of taken it a step further. Uh, I want the woods to look like woods, but I also want them to be usable uh, and have that practicality about it. So I make two versions of each wood. So I have a, a wooded base with trees and looks all pretty and stuff. And then I have one that is just, um, I use flock, I use static grass, whatever, but you can pop your miniatures on it. So that way we swap them out. They're exactly where they're supposed to be, you know, within a millimeter or whatever. Not any significant difference that matters. But this way you can clearly see what the models are that are in there. So they're not hidden. It's not a case, well, I didn't know you had another one in there. or I forgot. Or the dice get stuck under something. It's just, it's easy to see. It's easy to do. And I, I don't know why I never thought of that sooner. To just go ahead and have two versions of these things. Uh, but it's made a difference. I've used them a few times. It's been really handy. Nice. We have another comment here, actually. <coughs> Excuse me. It's wardrobe plays uh, WW2. I sometimes am too literal when interpreting miniature game maps. I'm learning it's best to understand the effect the scenario designer is going for. I don't know about you, Alyssa. I agree, but I think that is a very slippery slope because many people have different interpretations about what effect the designer may have chosen. Well, and I agree with you, Jonathan. Um, I agree with wardrobe, too. Um, it, it unfortunately, requires three people at the table that think like us, and we can all go, yeah, no, I, I get it. I think that sounds what I'm... But you're always going to get that one person that go, actually, oh God. the rules say on page 27 that if there was a... And we all... We've played with that type of person. We all have... 
and they're common. I want to say 25%, if not 30% of gamers are like that. And that's okay. I'm not knocking that. But these are the guys and the girls that will, they will nitpick over the, yes, but the woods are in this hex. They will nitpick. Uh, no, you don't have line of sight because of this, you know? Um, and so, and they, they're not interested in the spirit of, uh, you know, and that's fine. That, that, you know, we are amazingly complex creatures, we human beings. And, you know, rules try to convey to us, you know, how something should be run, how it should work. Um, but as human beings, we then want to interpret these rules in, in slightly different ways. And I think that's just built into us as creatures. And people like, uh, you know, World War II here, Jonathan, yourself, me, I think we're all like, yeah, no, that's fine. No, no, no. You can you can see the unit. You, you're okay. Um, or, or no, I I don't think the spirit like there's there's no woods there. Yeah, it bleeds in a little bit, but it's not. And we could do that, and it creates a very easy harmonious game. While there are other people, and we see them in role playing games too. We see them in any gaming system where they're like, no, it says on page seventeen. That if you do not have, you know, and they want to do that, and that, that's cool. Not knocking that type of person. It's just a different type of enjoyment out of a game. I, I think it's really important to for anyone who's participating in a game to know what they're getting into. Uh, so when I sign up for a game at a convention, the two most important things for me are, are who is running it mm -hmm. and what is being run. Uh, what kind of game is it? Uh, whether it's a rule system, whether it's a scale or whatever. So those are the two most important things for me to know up front. The third thing I would really love to know, but you can't know, is who else is playing? Because <laughs> that can matter. Um, we have someone watching. Uh, oh, it, it's Jamie, uh, whose uh, recommendation Hello, is... page 27. This is what I think of your page 27. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he says uh, I'm lucky enough to only play with close friends so very few worries about rules getting in the way which is invaluable I, I actually I saw something really funny online the other day uh, someone was talking about uh, they were lamenting actually about a game of I'm going to say it was like Warhammer Fantasy they were playing with someone at their local game store and this other person I think either didn't have the rule book or with them or the army book or whatever or they had some version of it and they kept on saying that you know my book says i can do this that and the other and my book says i and they there was no backup but the person who was complaining about it after the fact was like you know what i'm not gonna argue with them and so then eventually uh they had enough and so then they did something <laughs> and the the person who was annoying them was like that's not in the book and the person said it's in my copy of the book and you can't see it it just closed it up that's, that's an interesting take. It's in my book, in my mind. Um, <laughs> so it's like, well, okay. I think though there, there is an interesting theme to this particular conversation here. Um, in that, you know, your your particular enjoyment out of a game, I think, is dependent or partly dependent upon the people you are playing with, what you obviously you're playing, and who's running. And there's a whole mixture in there. You know, Jamie mentions, you know, playing with local friends. And I think that's the sweet spot, right? It's a known group. 
You could almost potentially play anything in the world. You're all going to have fun together. And you've managed to create this social environment that is very known and ergo controlled, hopefully, you know. And the further you start to, and that I think is Xanadu from a gaming perspective, right? And then the further you drift away from that, the more uncontrolled it becomes. And you start getting potentially into a game that you're not going to enjoy. And Jonathan, to your earlier points, it's then about trying to control them. What can you do to try and mitigate the uncertainty? And part of that is, let's say you're looking at the a convention spreadsheet or a convention list of games that you're going to pl uh, potentially play, right? It is the, 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 the list for the weekend. Well, you, you start off with what period? You know, what do I want to play in? What sounds interesting? Ooh, Ligny. Let's take a look at that, right? That type of thing. And that's down to you. All of this is down to the individual people. Of That's where you start. Is this checking that box of this is what I want to play? The next is, if you can, who's running? Uh, in fact, let me insert something in there. What rule system's being used? Because there's going to be certain rule systems you like and certain rule systems you don't. There's a big difference between blucher and black powder, right? And you're going to want a certain vibe out of it. I always look at rule systems next myself. You need to actually play on the circuit, so to speak, or revisit a certain convention a couple of times to then have an opinion about who is running. You know, and uh, Enfilade itself, a convention that I used to be a director for, um, it, it, like when I attended the first year, I could only go by, for the most part, period. Does it sound interesting or not? Um, then once I'd gone, I started to learn some of these alternative rule systems that I might be interested in playing and liking more. I could insert that into the mix. And... It was like, oh, this guy, I don't like the way he runs his game. Or he's very loose with his game. Or he walks away from the thinking table and leaves mm -hmm. it to the players, you know. And we've all seen that, too. Or the, the guy that doesn't make much of an effort. And he's just he's just throwing a piece of gray, uh, green cloth on the table. Versus the guy that always puts on a show. And is very proud of his work. You start to learn these characters and who who uh, just how they run the game. It's not whether they care or not. We all care. This is why we're, we're doing these things. But it's just the type of game that they run. And I think with a combination of those, you're going to be more assured a fun game or not. It's the period I like. It's a rule set I like or I'm willing to try out. And hot damn, this guy tends to run pretty good games that I run. And we all do that, by the way. There's a guy over in Enfilade called Dean uh, Motoyama who runs incredible games everyone loves them he sells out immediately because of it right so it's like those i think that's a trifecta of things that you've got to watch out for and then the only thing i would add to your point jonathan is who else is playing in it and i think you mentioned that right because i've had games where there have been these actually on page 27 and they just drag the game down what i've also just had people that I would consider to be real life friends who would, they don't care what they're playing. They just want to have fun and I will play with them anytime in any system, any period. I don't care because they're always a hoot to have at the table.
So those are the things I watch for. <laughs> we have a, a funny comment about something you said. It's a blue seascape. I can't put out anything else except the boats. <laughs> you know, the blue, but uh, 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 yes, the blue seascape. Absolutely. But you know what? I want to take that one stage further too. Mm -hmm. So there was, I played in, I want to say just in Enfilade, just in the scope of Enfilade itself. I've probably played three naval games. And one was like a pre-Dreadnought period with larger models. One was a, a Roman uh, sort of era where the, the little and the ships were like this big, you know, the galleys and such. They were super, super tiny. Um, and then there was uh, a more of a modern sort of one. And there still is a variation in how people set up. I, I mean, I've seen I've seen people uh, GMs. I'm going to call them game masters um, with whiteboards behind them with rules and tables and such. And what's on the table? visually is not appealing it just isn't it looks like i'm in someone's war room that is appealing to some players not to me the 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 roman one the roman one was okay the models were painted really nice he'd actually taken time to actually do the coastline and everything it, this was also by the way dean matoyama and it was for a naval game, it was visually stimulating and I, that's what i like by the way i like visually stimulating games uh, but then the pre-dreadnought one, oh, my God, I wanted to buy the rules and the models on the spot. <laughs> uh, it had the coastline all shaped out of here. The models were glorious. I fell in love with them. This is not even a period that particularly speaks to me. So I think the GM can still bring something to the table. While I've been at games where you might as well put something unpainted on the table at this stage because you clearly don't care land sea or otherwise you know i think you can still make it interesting no absolutely i would agree with you i think it can be a little more challenging when you do something in outer space or whether you're doing a naval game but that's when it's really important to have uh, i would say uh unique or extra special things with their tokens or game aids a really good battle mat for example uh, i love the Scarbox battle battle mats that they just they add a lot to it and uh, for them in particular, because they use this really nice felt, you can kind of uh, rub the felt a certain way to make it look like the waves are going. Uh, so you can add a little bit of depth. So it's Actually, not just. Yeah, 100%. And you and I are both fans of like cigar box, right? Yeah. Um, so there is a there is a difference between let's I'm just I'm going to pick for the sake of arguments, a space map, right? Mm -hmm. I could go and get just a, a, a piece of black cloth that's a little bit shiny because I got it from my local fabric store and they had it on discount versus an actual felt one that has actually got a star field on the back of it. You yeah. Know? They're both just, they, there's no terrain here, but one is visually more uh, pleasing than the other. And I, I tend to be a very visual person. I like a game that looks the part. In fact, there was a game at Enfilod a couple of years ago that, was on it was basically like a prehistoric game and mm. it was almost a skirmish game against like you know um, mammoths or something like that uh, i'm not even sure what the premise was but the board blew my mind the board by the way was nothing but grass oh but no because they had taken teddy bear fur and shaped it and stroked it so it looked like grass 
and they had these marshy areas in between these little bogs. It looked like something out of a museum. Mm -hmm. There wasn't a hill. There wasn't a tree. It was the best-looking board at that session, period. It just looked glorious. And so I think you can take something. Um, you could take, take something as boring as the ocean. Do you have something that looks like it's got waves on it or not? like Jonathan said, or is it just a piece of blue cloth that you found in the closet and it's actually a little bit shiny, you know? And I mean, I think you, if I may speak for you, which I try never to speak for other people, but I think you and I would agree there's nothing wrong with the blue cloth except the convention is not the correct place for it. Right, and I, I honestly, at the end of the day, and... Jonathan, you know this about me, um, but anyone that is watching this or will watch this, um, at the end of the day, I, I don't care what you play. I don't care what period you play. And I actually don't care what you put on the table or don't put on the table. If you have fun, I my heart sings. Mm -hmm. Period. Because in our little Venn diagrams of life, I share this one with you right here. And you may like World War II, like naval battles with books this thick of rules. That's cool. I don't, but I'm still going to look at your game. I'm going to see people enjoying themselves and I am going to be happy inside because of it. And so at the end of the day, you can take any approach you want, but there are ways of bringing a little bit more uh, attention to the table. Uh, and I, I like, I like tables that look interesting. You know, there's a lot of ancient battles that took place in a very plat, Plane, a flat plane, you know, there was there were no big hills, there were no forests or anything. They can't, you can't put a legion in the forest. They didn't do that type of shit. And, and that's cool. But you could still make the terrain interesting. I have a very good friend called Victor Cena. He has a YouTube channel. Uh, you should follow him. He's, he's, he's doing painting all of the time. And he created a battle mat that was nothing but grass. Looks brilliant. Because it's got flock and everything, and flock and little tufts of grass, and he rolls it up at the end, and he's done it. He takes it, brings it out, rolls it out. It looks like you're viewing a field from a thousand feet above. You know, you can it can be simple and yet still visually pleasing. So I know we're kind of winding down for our session. Uh, what kind of things are you working on? Or are there any projects or stuff you'd like to plug? Maybe uh, new uh, products you're putting out or any new exciting things happening in your world? Well, I guess a, big, a couple of things for me is, one, I'm going to wrestle with this uh, air gun until I get it down. I, I've not actually done it yet. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to video record the whole thing from taking it out of the box to actually using it. Um. And the other is uh, I have some incredible 75 millimeter and 120 millimeter miniatures that I'm working on. And I have Boudica on a chariot that is she's literally this big uh, from RP Models. RP Models does incredible stuff. She's probably going to be my main project of this year. Cool. I think that's pretty amazing. And um, if people want to stay current with all the things that you're doing, what's the best way for them to do that? Well, I'm on, honestly, almost every social media platform. Um, not so much TikTok, uh, of <laughs> course. Um, but you could honestly, just hit up uh, AlyssaFaden.com. All my social media platforms are right there. I post very regularly to Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Those are my big ones. Uh, and just 
follow me on one of those. I'm always way too much sharing what I'm up to. And uh, for anyone who's curious about what we're doing here at Wargaming Recon, we are on all the things from the side of skyscrapers to uh, <laughs> alien crop circles uh, as Wargaming Recon. Yeah, you can find us at WargamingRecon.com, uh, Facebook, YouTube, Insta, um, Twitter, whatever else we use. I, I can't remember. Wh wherever you find podcasts, we are there. So you can check that out. And I want to make sure that people uh, remember, because uh, I always forget to do this, we have some new merch that people can get by going to WargamingRecon.BigCartel.com. You can get t-shirts. We have uh, duffel bags and stuff like that. So you can put your gaming stuff in it uh, for all of that. And for anyone who's at the convention, hold the line. You can go to this address here to see what other events are happening. You can still sign up for stuff. There's more events happening later today. Seminars, workshops, games to play virtually, all that sort of stuff. Well, Alyssa, thank you so, so much for being here. Really, I am so appreciative of this. Now, the, the joy is all mine. I could talk hobby all day, Jonathan. It's never a problem. I, I could keep you here for days, but then my wife would be very bad at me. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you, everyone, for taking the time to check out this episode of Wargaming Recon and to spend time with us. And I just I want to remind everyone that no matter how busy you are, no matter what's going on in your life, no matter how much time you spend in thinking, hmm, Am I going to let the airbrush make me fearful today? And the answer is no. You know that you gotta, you need to, you have to keep on gaming. Thanks, everyone, and enjoy the rest of the convention. Are you always on the go? Why not take Wargaming Recon with you? If you use an app like Pocket Casts, you can listen to your favorite episodes of Wargaming Recon on your mobile device. Wargaming Recon is a proud member of the TSR Podcast Network. Visit wargamingrecon.com slash TSRPN for more information and to learn about the other good shows on the network. This recording is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Share-Alike License. Many thanks to Andrew and Court for inspiring the show's name. Wargaming Recon is dedicated to the memory of longtime listener Andrew. I ask all listeners to join me in a moment of silence in memory of Andrew. Thank you to everyone who backed our 2021 podcast season on Kickstarter. In particular, we'd like to thank 3DDZYN at 3DDesign.com, Nate Taylor of Dwarven Forge, and Things from the Basement, where you can get highly detailed laser cut terrain kits for 28, 20, and 15 millimeter figures and other exciting products. We couldn't have been successful without the help of all of you. Thank you so much for your support and being part of our community. We hope you are enjoying the 2021 season.